Today's podcast is brought to you by the Prime Original Limited Series, A Very English Scandal, starring Hugh Grant and Ben Wishaw. Now streaming for Guild members at ConsiderAmazon.com. Welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly. We're taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards, from the Golden Globes to the Oscars, and this week, the Independent Spirit Awards. I'm your host, Shana Naomi Krokmal, the digital director at EW, and I'm joined by the one and only Pia Sinha Roy, a senior writer covering movies for EW. She also writes a weekly columnist called The Awardist. As part of our comprehensive awards coverage in the magazine, online at EW.com, we're here on the podcast talking about the actors, films, and TV series that should win, which of those actually will win, and why. This week, we're diving into the Spirit Awards, out first among all of the January and February shows, what makes an indie movie likely to break the big award show barrier. And later in the show, Pia has a great conversation with Richard E. Grant and Marielle Heller from the Melissa McCarthy film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? So last week, you and W editor Bill Keith and I broke down whether escapist films or realistic films were more likely to score a Best Picture nod. That and was a fun deep dive. <laughs> a little longer That's than a I real think we deep planned. Dive. Uh, we really went year by year for about eight <laughs> years there. And and spoiler alert, the answer was generally speaking realistic films, right? With bonus points if they feel particularly triumphant, yes. the human condition, swelling, music. And like, nod to the showbiz world. And, and Right. And if it can be about LA or the showbiz world, <laughs> even better. Uh, but there's actually a lot of overlap there with smaller indie films versus big studio pictures and kind of that tension that we see in award season, right? Yeah, I, I think we've seen, especially in recent years, there's been a real overlap over the quite often the movies that win the Best Feature Award at the Independent Spirit Awards, which, by the way, are held the day before the Oscar ceremony. Um, so quite often you see that movie to go on to win Best Picture the, ne the next night. Um, and we've seen this with Birdman. We've seen this with Spotlight. We saw this with Moonlight, which was a real surprise um, on the Oscar stage that night. We didn't get to see that this year with the Get Out. Get Out won the the top awards at the Independent Spirit Awards. Did not quite crack into the um, the Best Picture race. Wasn't able to take away that. But it was the, a strong contender um, to Shape of Water, which ended up winning. So, uh, yeah, I think quite often the Independent Spirit Awards really gives us a good kind of primer on, on the early contenders, the things that voters are really paying attention to and are showing a lot of love for. So last Friday, we got the new batch of nominees for the Spirit Awards. And let's go through a little of them. I think you know it's very early. Like the, as you said, the show doesn't air until right before the Oscars in February. Yeah. This is like the first of the kind of televised awards that gets nominated. Yeah. There's, you know, there's a whole kind of spectrum of awards. You've got the Gotham Awards. You've got other things that do tend to highlight more independent film earlier yeah. on. But I think this is sort of the biggest, uh, the biggest of the indies. Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah, this is uh, the Independent Spirit Awards is very much the sort of uh, the premier place 
right now that honors and recognizes achievements in independent film. Independent film here is qualified by anything made under $20 million budget. So it's uh, like a hard financial cutoff. It is a financial cutoff, correct. Um, and obviously for a lot of people, $20 million is not quite independent. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that's kind of, you, you're operating with something like Get Out was a $5 million uh, indie horror. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're, you're seeing a lot of films within that kind of five to 10 range here. But there's no rule about it being part of this. It can be from a smaller arm of a studio correct it can be from the a lot of these um major film studios have their independent arms i put independent in quotation marks because she's making actual air quotes (laughs) i am actually quotationing that um independent the independent arms of studios really means that quite often they'll go and they'll either produce or they'll acquire independent films out of festivals but then you have studio resources to market and campaign and that's where the biggest difference is quite often because uh, that twenty million is the production budget, correct? Right, that's the, not the marketing. Budget. No, and quite often okay. you could be doubling or tripling that budget to campaign for the Oscars. So this does not take that into account. And I feel like that's part of the calculation on the part of some of the major studios, right? Is that they know there it, it doesn't it's not as big an investment as a hundred million dollar giant huge film if it comes out great and it's getting that critical acclaim and they can tell in the finished product, it's a little bit more of a calculated risk. Then they can put that extra money against it on the marketing and the award season and, you know, for your consideration side, but they didn't start off spending five times as much on something that may or may not actually resonate in an awardsy kind of way. Yeah, you know, for, for them, this is a prestige thing. You know, they want to be providing films for the cinephiles and, you know, to do, to sort of cater to that independent loving audience. Um, but also, you know, an Oscar nomination means more eyeballs, you know, or any awards love means more eyeballs. So the money that they're investing um, really is just it's it's a massive marketing campaign to bring more 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 people to theatres to watch these. And that's what does happen. You know, quite often a lot of these films, you don't tend to hear of them. And then all of a sudden they start to get, you know, nominated at these early awards and people try to find a way to go back to them. So it's a good investment if it can reach that level of success and love. If it doesn't, it can go. We've seen some fairly, um, you know, big kind of disasters, such as Birth of a Nation a couple of years ago. Fox Searchlight bought that out of Sundance for a record 17 million, which is like, I think, unheard of at that time. And everyone was saying that was going to go on to win, you know, all the Oscars. But there was, uh, you know, at a certain point, a lot of controversy happened around the director. And, uh, and all of a sudden, it derailed the entire project. And before you know it, all that money, all that time spent on this movie just went down the drain. So I think it's uh, it's a, it's a gamble, but they but studios have the money to spend. The the movies I'm always interested in seeing are are the ones that aren't coming out of the studio indie arms, but you know really are kind of the ones that are being independently distributed. And uh, quite often, when you see a, a movie like that really rise the ranks to that best picture race, that's a triumphant story in itself. That, and as we know, the triumph should win. Let's talk about <laughs> the Spirit Awards, the nominations. Let's start with kind of like the big best feature, which is what their their biggest category is. Yeah. And we've got five nominees in that category. Eighth Grade, First Reformed, If Beale Street Could Talk, Leave No Trace, and You Were Never Really Here. Talk to me about that category. This is a really interesting um 
selection and mainly because I feel like it's picking a lot of films that came out earlier this year. Uh, Eighth Grade, First Reformed, Leave No Trace and You Were Never Really Here all came out much earlier this year. They were all well, very well received. But sort of, you know, these movies kind of the buzz slows down. And traditionally, a lot of films get held for that sort of last gasp of that's why you want to release them now. Exactly. The Oscars eligibility is till the end of the year, right? So are you saying you think there are some titles that maybe people didn't see enough early screenings of? I think so. I think there's some films here that I'm surprised to not see. Um, Green Book being one of them, which is coming out from um, Universal Pictures, Participant and DreamWorks. And that's a Mahashala Ali and Viggo Mortensen story by Peter Farrelly. It's a really great story and getting a lot of early buzz. Um, I think last week, Bill Keith, our deputy (laughs) editor, basically put his bold take. I feel like he's like double down. All his money is on Green Book. It really is. Bill is very much the very early out, but the he's early green book opinion. advocate. Yeah, um, and I can see why. This is interesting, though. Eighth grade was uh, Bo Burnham, the comedian's first directorial debut, and uh, it's a really great, um, very nuanced coming of age tale uh, with a, a newcomer. First reformed is Ethan Hawke, getting so much love for his performance in that. Leave no trace. Ben Foster again. Critics were like raving about this film, but <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't going wide. And then you were never really here is uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Lynn Ramsey. And it's it's a very quiet, subtle film um, that came out much earlier this year and then ended up on it. It was an Amazon film. So it came out theatrically, then went on Amazon. Um, the, the thing that could be happening is that people have just been discovering it more and more through the year. Uh, but I also think there's an element of because these nominations have come out so early and because uh, it's possible that a lot of the voters of the film independent um, members have not had a chance to see some of these contenders that are coming out. Film independent, that group is relatively small, right? It's not um, even is it bigger than the HFPA? I mean, these are all pretty small groups. Of it people. is bigger than the HFPA. It's but it's a different voting group. It, quite often, the film independent um, members you can buy membership, um, and they are people who mainly work in the industry, but across all the arms. Um, they really an, are committed to independent film. Yeah, there's there's a lot of love for independent film, and buying a membership to film independent. It's not just about the awards. They have all these screening series over the years, so a lot of it is just for getting in on those. Um, but I also think it's uh, some I'm never entirely sure exactly how much of a crossover there is into like the Oscars voting members which is like very selective um, but has opened up in the last couple of years to including more kind of newcomers or people out of the indie world so maybe there's more of a crossover on that field I just think that these nominations have come out so like so early that it's almost like not looking at some of the other contenders that are coming out sort of in the space between now and and end of the year. And do you think that follows through? Let's talk about like the best director, maybe the male lead and female lead, which is their best actor or actress. Um, You want to go through some of those and where are you surprised or not surprised? The best director race, I'm actually really happy to see three ladies on here and two men, um, which is... Very unheard of, um, I think. We have uh, Deborah Granick for Leave No Trace. We have Tamara Jenkins for Private Life. And we have Lynn Ramsey for You're Never Really Here. Uh, and then we also have Barry Jenkins for If Beale Street Could Talk and Paul Schrader for First Reformed. Um, this is this is a really interesting race. I am not 
entirely sure again given that these movies have kind of these are not the movies i would have necessarily have thought about in this but um much more diverse group of directors it's a very diverse group of directors and this is what i think um film independent does quite often which is you know they really do try and reflect more of the diversity in the years uh, recent, like I think 2015, 2016, when the Oscars went through Oscars so white, uh, Film Independent Spirit Awards made sure that diversity very much was being celebrated and the actors and the hosts made that a point. So uh, so it's great to see a list here that's reflecting a changing landscape, hopefully. Anyone you would have expected to see among that group who's not in there, just off the top of your head? Um. I, uh, I'm actually surprised, um, to not see Marielle Heller on there because Can You Ever Forgive Me has been getting so much love, um, and uh, her directing, I think, is really at the core of this movie and, and shaping, you know, what is so unexpectedly um, wonderful about it. So it did pick up a screenplay nod and Best Supporting Male for Richard E. For Grant, Richard e. Grant. Which I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm surprised she's not on the list. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised that Private Life is on the list because that's a movie that I feel has had a, a little bit of a... It has its few fans, but I haven't seen it receive... A, a sort of bigger love so I'm, I'm surprised with that one um but yeah that that's an interesting race and then like the male and female leads race um again I think you're looking and I would say especially in the male leads we got John Cho for searching yeah that was a surprise um it is a surprise and it's I'm really happy I mean, to see he's him great. on there I, it's it yeah I'm excited for it. I'm happy to see that film being given some love because, it, you know, it's a, it's a genre film. It's um, It came out in August and, you know, it, there were some weird plot things that, you know, people were picking I mean, was, apart. Yeah, it wasn't what you would normally think of in, in an awards race. No, not at all. Um, but his performance really is actually kind of incredible in it and I'm really happy to see him on there. David Diggs and Blindspotting is another one. That's a movie that just, I think, sadly really went away very quickly and it was actually a very important film a very well done film uh, or at least very well performed and I'm glad that David is actually getting uh, recognition here so and then the female lead race has been really fascinating as well um, just to see you know, we've got uh, Glenn Close for The Wife. We've got Best Supporting Female. I thought Regina King was so great in Beale Street Could Talk. Any other standouts for you there in the Spirit Award nominations? Actually, I, for me, I think Regina King, I'm really glad she got the nomination there because um, that was a role that I just wish I'd seen more of her in the film. So, But I think all of those performances, I must admit, I have not yet seen A Bread Factory <laughs> um, and Nancy, but uh, I would say I think I'm sure all of these performances you know the good thing with uh, Spirit Awards is that they like to try and identify you know exciting new talent and I think uh, we get to see that in this race then a little bit of a quirk with the international film because there's several yes. films in their nominees who I think we're expecting to see in the best picture race overall for me yes I, I was so first of all Roma uh, which is Alfonso Cuaron's um, movie that's coming out on Netflix um, that is a real strong front runner right so now strange at the Oscars. To see it. I wonder if this was 
I don't know if you like, nominate yourself or how this ended up here. I'm sure there's a reason. The, yeah, I think it's literally because Roma is actually a film that has been produced, you know, completely internationally. It's a, a Mexican production company. Netflix um, bought it basically to distribute. Um, but that also means it's an international production. So I think it made sense that it would go there. And the same goes for uh, The Favourite, which is uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's very twisted, uh, like dark nightmare of Queen Anne's Court starring Olivia Colman, Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone. And this is, again, this is a movie that you would kind of expect, to, I thought it would be leading the race. But now that I'm seeing it in international film, I realise, okay, clearly this is a qualifications thing. Like it, it had to be in that category, which is why it's kind of absent from the others this awards uh, the spirit awards do honor specifically their main categories are for u.s independent film so um that is what we're seeing reflected kind of an odd mix overall from the yes. spirit awards but it, we'll see where that goes it airs february 23rd the saturday before the oscars broadcast live on ifc so sometimes there's some fun quirky moments that happen during it um but too yeah, late it's obviously like the to, too late to impact anything else that anyone would be voting on yeah so early and then late in the cycle yes um Thanks so much for talking us through all these great independent films. When we come back, Pia is talking to Richard E. Grant and the director, Marielle Heller, from Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, and we'll be back in just a moment. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Prime original series, A Very English Scandal, the shocking true story of the first British politician to stand trial for conspiracy to murder. Starring Hugh Grant as the charming and charismatic Jeremy Thorpe, the leader of the Liberal Party, and Ben Wishaw as his flamboyant and hapless ex-lover Norman Scott. Directed by Stephen Frears and based on the novel by John Preston, a very English scandal unfolds over three compelling and entertaining episodes the Wall Street Journal calls rollicking, sublimely written work. When Scott puts Thorpe's brilliant political career at risk, Thorpe schemes and deceives until he realizes there's only one way to silence Scott for good. A touching, thrilling, and sometimes absurd story of love and ambition, NPR says, as a playground for Wishaw and Grant, a very English scandal soars. Watch the limited series streaming now for Guild members at ConsiderAmazon.com. Welcome back to The Awardist. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We are talking specifically about independent films. We talked about the Spirit Award nominations. And now my colleague, Pia Sinaroy, is talking to Richard E. Grant, um, who just got a Best Supporting Actor nod for... Can You Ever Forgive Me, the Melissa McCarthy movie directed by Marielle Heller, who also joins Pia for a great conversation. Thank you both so much for, for joining us. Uh, I've, I've been really excited to talk about this film, um, mainly because it was so unexpected uh, for me. I did not really know what I was going in to watch. When you see Melissa McCarthy, you sort of have a vision of what you're walking into and mm -hmm. then you walk out going, ah, that was not what I was looking at. Um, Transformative incredibly transformative again she's she's just such an incredibly talented gifted chameleon she's got a, yeah she has many many sides to herself she's yeah. amazing she do, she does um so i definitely wanted to ask the both of you uh, what it was like to work on this movie together and and what you all really connected to within the story well for me you know 
I, when reading the the script, I was considering what was going to be my second movie, which is always a really hard thing to figure out after you've made a movie that was a big passion project, something that I loved and I, I had worked on for eight years, trying to figure out then how to make something, you know, so you don't fall into your sophomore slump or whatever people say. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted it to be. I knew I didn't want to make something within the teenage realm. Mm -hmm. But when I read this script, I weirdly felt like the character of Lee was sort of similar to my teenage girl character <laughs> I had had in Diary in that she was like finding her voice and becoming herself and going through a lot of painful self-discovery. But I also found her to just be a voice that I had not heard before. Somebody mm -hmm. who is so witty and so raw and so wrong and says all of the things you shouldn't say and um, is a bit of an asshole. Can I say that? Um, indeed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't really get to see women characters who are like that, particularly mm -hmm. women characters who just don't care about how they look. She cares so much more about her intelligence and her yeah. work than she does about how the world perceives her. Mm -hmm. um, so I, actually there was a line in the movie that got cut out where her ex-girlfriend said, you always seem to care more about what people thought of your work than what they cared, when, what they thought about you. And Lee went, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. And it's like, that's who she is, you know? Yeah. She, I just found her refreshing. Unvarnished. Un... Unfiltered. Unfiltered, yeah. Which just, is really nice yeah. to see. And, there, and then the thing I also was so drawn to was her relationship with Jack. I thought it was a really tender and beautiful portrait of a friendship, sort of from beginning to finish. And it, I, it tugged at my heartstrings for whatever reason. How did you feel about it, Richard? I think that uh, exactly what uh, Maria said is that the it, it really takes you through the A to Z and the vicissitudes of friendship, that you go from the initial connection that they have where it's a kind of you know a platonic falling in love that they have with each other or a sense of mutual enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And then you go through the loyalty phase and then the inevitable betrayal and then reluctant uh, reconciliation, which is underpinned and made all the more poignant in this story because you discover right at the end that Jack Hawk, who I play, is HIV positive, and that's mm -hmm. the last time they're going to see each other. Mm -hmm. And even in that moment, there's you know, there's a brilliant line that Lee Israel Harris sums her up where she said, when I saw you walking in with that stick, I had an overwhelming desire to trip you up, which is exactly <laughs> the kind of thing... It's, I don't know whether there's a tradition here, but you will know as an English person that uh, insulting somebody who you really have a connection with... That's true affection. ...is, is real <laughs> affection, yeah. You can only call somebody an absolute drongo or give them a terrible nickname if you really adore them. Um, and to somebody outside of that may think, you know, these people are being really rude to each other. Yeah. And then but you call her a horrid cunt. Yeah, Exactly, <gasps> you know. So Sorry. Oh, maybe I can't say that. <laughs> but it's, but it's done. Don't... It's done in a way. But that, it's like, yeah, it's like yeah. you're saying, "I love you." Almost. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I um, hate you so much, and I love you so much that I'm going to call you the worst possible thing that I can do. And so. I think that savagery in their friendship is what kind of makes them so endearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they are both so witty, and it's and non politically smart. correct. You know, it's not. Nobody's trying to be no. anything other than yeah. how it is. And I love the fact that Mari's direction and concept of the whole thing, as well as Jeff Whitty and Nicole Holof Center's script, made no great shakes about the fact that what the sexuality of the characters were. So right. you never had at any one moment did you have 
because the main protagonist is um, a very prickly lesbian. Yeah. And, you know, there's no Katie Lang on the soundtrack. And <laughs> by the same count for Jack Hawk, who's a gay man in this, yeah. you know, Dying Bades, there is no Judy Garland and Maria Callas don't come <laughs> swooping onto the soundtrack. And I thought just that in itself was such a smart choice to have made that some other filmmaker may have thought, well, you know, we've got to amp all this up and right. give it some more of that context. You don't so I need love to, that. it's there. Yeah. yeah, that is actually We really were conscious cool. of never wanting to be kind of overly sentimental or trying to soften who these people were. That, yeah. that mm-hmm. kind of wickedness between them was so inherent to who they were that even at the end when things are yeah. really dire, you know, it has to stay in that mode. And yeah. it's almost more touching. I find your guys' performances in that scene, it's almost even more touching because there's no sentimentality to it. Yeah. Richard, I have to ask you, because you've just been in so many incredible productions. That's because I'm so old. That that is not what I said. (laughs) That is what you're saying. That is not at all what I said. I just feel like you've just, your career spans everything under the sun in a way. And yet I wonder, what was it about playing Jack or just being part of this production that perhaps you felt like you had never had a chance to do before? Uh, I think that... Doing a movie where, especially the tentpole movies that we have now, and we're so marveled, you know, in every direction mm-hmm. that something CGI'd or has mm-hmm. supersonic, super fantastical heroes flying in all directions, to have a movie that has the bravery and I don't know, just the courage to go. These are scenes between two people talking mm-hmm. that. Um, isn't just a talking heads where you think, well, you know, it's... I, I really thought of it as the equivalent of a road movie in that it just goes through the byways of Manhattan in the early 90s, you know, from bar to bedsit to mm-hmm. bar to flop house, whatever. Um, but you go on a journey with these, these two characters and you really understand why and how they do what they do. And through all of that, you have through the understanding, you then have compassion for people. Right. And it means that you can't really sit in judgment in the same way that you go, boldly go, well, you know, this person is a fellow and that person is a a drug addict yeah. with health problems. You, you, you're engaged with these people's lives. So to have a script that offers you that as an actor, mm-hmm. um, you know, the previous movie that I'd done just before um, doing Mari's movie was Logan, which is, you know, a Marvel. It's a Wolverine, the final chapter in the Wolverine story where... Which is actually one of my favourite mm-hmm. films But, you know, it's as testosterized as Absolutely. you could get. There are it's 300 guys with arms and machinery, you know, <laughs> wider than my entire waist. So all, that, all that's going on. And the dialogue is you're speaking stuff that is, for me, a kind of techno gobbledygook. You know, I mean, <laughs> within the context of the movie, sure. it, it makes sense, but... When you're doing a movie like Mari's movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me, then it's you're dealing with real emotion and a real situation that is not set in some other realm yeah. in another universe. And that is enormously welcome. And for an actor, that is the gift. That's what you long to do. And then you get to flip back on to Star Wars Episode Nine <laughs> <laughs> For more techno. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
the the key thing that I've always been looking at whenever it comes around to Oscars is I love to look at like where the independent films kind mm. of you know status is in that particular year. This year, I just feel like there's been such a wealth of um, independent independently made stories that are coming through. Uh, this is one of them, and I just wondered what it what it is like to work in that vein of indies um, and how you feel like it's evolved over the years. I've had so many people come up to me and say, I can't believe anyone let you make this movie. And I think that's because it is, as you just put so eloquently, it's a movie about real characters. It's sort of, we thought about Midnight Cowboy when we were making it. It's sort of the type of movie we don't make so much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, because it isn't just two people in a room talking. It isn't one of those, these sort of like tiny micro, it's a period piece. It does have this sort of larger story. Um, but at the heart of it, it's about people. It's about humanity. It's about characters and it's about relationships and human behavior. And so I feel really lucky. I wasn't aware when we were making it that this was not the type of thing that anybody should have let me make, I guess. But, um, but I do feel really lucky now that we were able to make a movie and we were able to do it in a very pure way. I kept, I was talking the other night about how it feels like each movie is sort of like a child in that you have to let the child be who it is. Right. And I remember talking to the studio about this movie and saying, you know, this, this child is not a jock. Let this movie be what this movie is. Yeah. Um, and luckily they did and let, let us make this movie, which is a very prickly, sweet, sad look at humanity and has, I don't know, this strong beating heart. Um, and it's also about two queer people. So it's a, yeah. it's, it's a very unique unique movie in that way and also to make a movie that that one of the central tenets of it is that it is a is about loneliness and isolation mm -hmm. in you know the silhouette of our age now is everybody's head is bowed down to a tablet or a telephone mm -hmm. so to see a movie where people have to go to a phone box or just sitting in a bar chewing the cud and talking the about the way days. of the world not, i don't want to be sentimental about it it's just that 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 people have connected and commented mm -hmm. on that more than once. So, and we have that experience at Telluride where people came up and literally grabbed Melissa and I arms and Mari as well and said, this movie really made us feel something as though that was something that you don't experience a lot in a movie mm -hmm. anymore. You may admire it or think, my God, that's yeah. extraordinarily brilliantly done. But really feeling something is something that we we have been very struck by. Yeah. A man said to me last night, I, I don't feel like movies get made about me and this is my life. This is my story. And <laughs> yeah. I, it made me so happy. I knew he was connecting to Jack, but also just being a single gay person who lives a certain type of life and to feel like your story isn't worth telling because it doesn't involve all of the tropes that we tend to put into movies you know, great love stories or having mm -hmm. kids and all of these other things, but to have this movie that's really, I don't know, telling a different type of story, it makes me happy when people say things like that. And that also, even though it's dealing with loneliness, you yeah. don't come out at the end and think, well, you want to go and slit your wrist no. or take an overdose. No, it's also funny <laughs> and it, it, you know, yeah, touching and yeah, enjoyable yeah. to watch. It's a life-enhancing. I, I think just watching their interactions <laughs> was very, um, it, like I said, there's, there's something very warm within the core of it. Yeah. Um, Marielle, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned this is, of course, your sophomore film. Yes. Um, and... I just wonder, you know, th there has been a real spotlight on on female directors, especially mm -hmm. this year. But what has the <laughs> challenge been? Because um, I've noticed this so often you get these great debuts and then 
yeah it takes a while to get that second film off and running but i know you're going on to your third yes, uh, which I is a great the tom hanks mr rogers project that yes. we're very excited for but getting to that second film what was your biggest challenge to overcome well i was aware that the statistics are really bad that um men making their sophomore movie and i'm not sure if these are the exact right mm. Uh, statistics, but it takes them on an average of three years, and for women, it takes an average of eight years to yeah. make your second movie. So, I was very aware of the fact that this happens, and that for a lot of really fabulous filmmakers who've had beautiful de debuts at Sundance, like I did, then nothing happens for a long time. And I've seen it; I've been at mm -hmm. film festivals where I see people talking about a female filmmaker who just had a beautiful debut of some incredibly amazing movie that was edgy and well told and well directed and they said well let's see what she does next and then we'll decide if we want to work with Ugh. her um so it feels so brutal it does yeah. <laughs> it does and so on one hand I knew that there was this trend for it to take a long time so I was very aware that I wanted to make another movie and I wanted to make a, another movie fairly quickly um but I also benefited from the time we're in and the fact that the conversation has turned toward recognizing that we have this deficit of female filmmakers and that we need more female voices mm -hmm. in this industry. So in many ways, I've benefited from the fact that that's where the conversation is right now. Mm -hmm. And I know that the women who came before me had it much worse than I did. I had a lot of opportunities and luckily actually kind of had my pick of the litter of what I wanted to do for my second movie. Right. So I just had to get over my own brain and my own <laughs> neuroses and be able to say yes to something wonderful. And then I was able to make another wonderful movie. But I'm aware that I'm very, very lucky in that regard. And, and that, that happened because of all of the women filmmakers who fought so hard right. for the last hundred years and have made it so that I, I get to benefit. Well, I'm glad we don't have to wait eight years for your next <laughs> Thank one. you, yes. So um, what she's saying is that she's pushed the zeitgeist button. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have a, yes. a, a movie starring a female protagonist yes. who is not the conventional person at all. Mm -hmm. It's co-written by a woman, directed by a woman, produced mostly by produced women. by women. Half the crew were women. So, you know, that... that that's a that's a real turnaround and a change. Yeah, and very welcome for this old man here. And I think you feel it. I think you feel it with this movie. I mean, it's yeah. a movie that is a has a very um, compassionate, gentle stance on a fifty one year old cat lady who you know, with no children, lesbian who lives in the Upper West Side. You know, I don't think that's the type of movie that. Uh, you know, a lot of people are wanting to make these days, but all of us loved her and loved their dynamic so much, yeah. and I think that comes from yeah. the diversity of our. And you didn't change the title either. No. Because I remember when, when we did towards go the through, end of shooting, we're we talking did. about, is this going to be called Lee or yeah, Israel? Yeah, Lee's Letters or, you know, or what, yeah. What do you do? It is yeah. a long title. How do you think the title works? Do you think it works well? Can you ever forgive me? I think once you've seen the movie and you get the joke behind it, it works fabulously. I worry if you haven't seen the movie that it's hard to remember. I think that because, you know, it's had this tidal wave of absolutely astonishing reviews that I've you know they're like love letters on a daily basis it's so true which is astonishing and has been right from the beginning you accept the, the thing I think it's the exact same thing that happened with three billboards last year you think mm -hmm. how the hell are you going to sell a movie that has that long of a title and especially a movie like this where you've got a question mark at the end of it <laughs> if it had been bad it is a gift to reviewers it's to true. go can you yes, forgive me is. never yeah. you know what I mean so but I think that it's one of those things that because it's authentic to itself and yeah. has, has been so well created by Mari that I, I've, I, I haven't questioned that at all right. as, as a title. And nobody else has either. 
So before I let you guys go, we are asking everybody to do some, we're asking you guys to go out a little bit on a limb here and do some bold takes for this upcoming award season. So we're looking at just your respective, you know, the characters, the categories that you might be uh, within and asking who else you would love to see in that. So Richard, for you, the the best supporting male actor category here, um, there are some incredible performances out there. Who would Extraordinary you ones. love to see nominated in that? Uh, who would I love to see? You mean, apart from the people, the, the usual suspects that we already know about? Well, just person, anyone you like. Who, who do you feel from this year's crop? Um, that you'd like to see in that category? I thought Mashallah Ali was absolutely extraordinary and Nicholas Holt in The Favourite and Timothy Chalamet in Beautiful uh, Boy, Boy. Uh, Sam Elliott in Star is Born. I mean, up, down and sideways. Goodness, you're just naming all of them. (laughs) Well, they're so, you know, they're so good. Yeah. 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 Was there any particular standout that you were so surprised by? Surprised by? um, I think... I think Timothy Chalamet is literally one of the most astonishing actors has ever been around. Wow. I think he can play yeah. any age, any any era, any epoch. He And he has a kind of gender fluidity, which is so of the moment as well. Mm-hmm. And I think he's extraordinary. And the choices that he makes are so smart. I'm in awe of what he does. That's a good pick. I think a lot of people will back you up on that. As I've seen some of the Timothy Chalamet fans, they are uh, they are out in force. Um, Marielle, for you in the, the director's category. Well, I'm lucky that I'm friends with a lot of people who've made beautiful movies this year. My dear friend Chloe Zhao, who made The Writer. I Which think, is an incredible Yes, movie. and I think she deserves a lot of attention. Um, Ryan Coogler, I think for Black Panther, he's also somebody who I'm lucky enough to know and call a friend. And I think he's really changed our landscape of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I know I feel it in every room I go into and every meeting I have from the time Black Panther came out. Um, but I think he's also made a Marvel movie, which is about heart and humanity and human nature. And I think that's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, yeah, those are my my top. Those picks, are good so. picks, spanning that that range there yes. as well, from the Black Panther to the Rider. Yes, I love that. That's great. Um, I, just... I think Marielle Heller's film. Can you ever forgive me? <laughs> yeah. If I just put my tuppence halfpenny in for that one. <laughs> yeah, this was a really beautiful film, uh, and I just was so blown away by how um, how much like heart there really is to a character who just seems like, you know, she's living life in one way, but really you got to the core, which I thought was fascinating. So Mm. thank you both so much um, for joining us to talk about Can You Ever Forgive Me and your other bold takes. And uh, I look forward to seeing a lot more of you guys as the award season goes on. Thank Thank you. you. And that is our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining me and Pia and Richard and Marielle who talk about independent film um, and where it fits into the larger awards season race that we're in the middle of. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, you can always get complete uh, awardist coverage at EW.com and in the magazine. Pia has a weekly column. A number of our other very talented and super knowledgeable staffers also weigh in about various uh, candidates, contenders for below-the-line nominations, uh, taking a look back at Oscars of years past. You can uh, check out our updated list of who we think are the leading contenders. Um, And thank you for joining us. We're the awardist uh, from Entertainment Weekly. 